At last, October. Here at the GM Word of the Week Spooky House, we're aware that some of you really, really enjoy October. Or at least the very end of it. Probably a bit too much, if we're honest. And we're equally aware that many of you will attempt to dress up as the scariest thing you can think of. So we're certain some of you will require the following advice. Don't. Do not dress up as any particularly well-known viruses or political candidates. Just don't. Dig out your old Count Chocula costume instead. Yes, we had one. Why do you ask? Anyway, Halloween advice aside, we're equally, equally aware that we sometimes, occasionally, all the time, do a special theme some Octobers. Just like every other podcast in the world. Usually it revolves around the idea that the entire month is scary just because one day of it involves dressing up as some sort of character that may or may not be frightening depending on your age, disposition, and general inclination to offend. This year ought to be really exciting, as all of us have been going around in masks already for most of it. So ideally, the scariest costume is whatever shows up at your door not wearing a mask. However, this year we've decided to break with our irregular sometimes tradition and not do a series of themed episodes at all. We're pretty sure last year's theme is what broke our previous researcher in the first place, so let's just not risk it, shall we? Much better to play it safe with a bunch of warm, fuzzy episodes designed to put your mind at ease during the troubling times this year is turning out to be. No one needs any more stress than they've already got, we figure. So warm fuzzies it is, all the way, right to the end of the month. No problem. We mentioned a while back, in the first of our episodes on Tall Tales, that we had particular interests as children when it came to our reading material. One of those was the foundation for the two Tall Tale episodes, which we had a lot of fun making. But there were others that we took but a moment to mention, one of which was a certain fascination with stories probably best described as tales of questionable veracity. They might be true, provided you were prepared to really stretch the definition of true and also ignore a bunch of evidence to the contrary. But more than likely, the explanation for these stories lay in imagination and a willingness to suspend disbelief. At least for most of them. And to a certain extent, that was the level on which we enjoyed them, as entertaining stories of imagination about things which mostly probably didn't really exist, maybe. But it was fun to pretend they did. We're talking about a particular field of study here called cryptozoology. It's made up of several bits of Greek etymology, one of which means hidden, and the others of which mean the study of animals. So basically, it's the study of hidden animals, and it is very clearly labeled as pseudoscience everywhere, except where people actively practice it. It looks like science, sounds like science, even smells like science, but it fails the methodology test. And for a time there, just as we had been with folktales and dinosaurs, we were real experts in the field. At least the field as it was presented to us in our local library during the summer reading program. We knew all sorts of things about all sorts of things, and read with relish all the stories we could find on them. And we can't even begin to tell you how excited we were the summer our librarian decided Sasquatch was going to be the mascot for the program. And it's hard to get warmer and fuzzier 
than Bigfoot. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. First, we should probably lay down some ground rules. We're not going to prove or disprove the existence of Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Honestly, if you press us, we really don't care whether it exists or not. We just enjoy the stories for what they are. Bits of folklore told by various people over the years that form a large, collected body of stories. To us, they're just a bit of fun, about which it is enjoyable to speculate from time to time. Also, we're really only concerned with stories of the North American Sasquatch and Bigfoot in this episode. We're aware that there are many, many stories of similar creatures from around the world, from the Yeti to Almas to the Australian Yowie. They're all very interesting and certainly fall within our consideration, but our original interest lay in the American and Canadian representatives. In fact, it's even more accurate to say that we're really focusing on the Bigfoot and Sasquatch stories that came out of the Pacific Northwest region of Canada and the U.S. There are many, many reports of creatures across the whole of North America, but these came into our awareness only relatively recently. So we're going to focus on what we remember best from our childhood. And that's really the key here. Mostly, we'll be telling you some of the stories we heard about Bigfoot when we were kids that really caught our imaginations and made us think, living in the Pacific Northwest as we do, that a Bigfoot was going to come down out of the nearby hills, cross the busy interstate near our house, and then sort of stand around in our backyard waiting to be noticed. Hey, it could happen. When you're nine. For those of you who have never heard of Sasquatch, let's begin by explaining that name. See, for years before Europeans came to North America, the Native Americans and First Nations of the region had hairy wild men of the woods as part of their traditions. These all went under a variety of names depending on the various cultures they were involved in, sometimes changing from community to community, even within the same general group of people. And while the description of the creatures all more or less matched, their behaviors didn't. Some were said to be benign creatures, a sort of spirit of the forest. Others were said to be vicious cannibals that would eat children who spoke their names. Some frequented the mountains, others preferred the woods, and still others preferred to be near the beaches and oceans. One tribal tradition might be that these wild men migrated throughout the year and were only present at certain times as they moved around the land. Other creatures were said to move with the tribe and always be close to hand. It all depended on who was telling the story, as did their name. But as Europeans began to encounter these groups, they took an interest in their lore and began to write it down. Throughout the 1800s, numerous settlers encountered names like Chiatanka, Semequis, Stiaha, and Wendigo, about which see our episode. Eventually, in collecting the stories, it occurred to someone to publish them in some form. But rather than have several dozen names to track, J.W. Burns, an Indian agent, decided to bring them all together under one name. So in 1920, he began publishing the stories in newspapers and borrowed the Halkomalem word Saskets, which he then modified slightly to Sasquatch, in order to bring them together under one roof. And for years, that's what these creatures were called. Which is what a man named Albert Ostman called them when he had an encounter with some of the creatures in 1924. Well, sort of. See, Ostman didn't tell his story until 1957, and by then... Well, let's tell Albert's story first. Then you can decide if there's anything to be gained by examining it for truth. 
Ostman was a logger and construction worker who was coming off a year-long construction contract and wanted to do some prospecting in British Columbia in order to relax. He took a boat to Lund, British Columbia, chasing after a supposed lost gold mine near Toba Inlet. Once in Lund, he hired a native guide to take him overland to the Toba Inlet, and along the way discovered the man was a wealth of stories. In particular, one of the stories that caught Albert's interest was about a local man who never seemed to have his own money, but always managed to turn up with bags of gold after disappearing for a few days. According to his guide, the man went out to retrieve his gold one day, which was supposed to come from a secret mine, and never returned. Everyone assumed he'd been taken and killed by a Sasquatch. According to Ostman, he'd never heard the word Sasquatch before, and asked what sort of animal it was. He was told, They have hair all over their bodies, but they are not animals. They are people. Big people living in the mountains. My uncle saw the tracks of one that were two feet long. One Indian saw one over eight feet tall. When Albert told the man he didn't believe in their fables, the guide replied that there might not be many left, but they definitely existed. By the early evening, they arrived at their destination near Toba Inlet. Ostman tells his guide to come back for him in three weeks and sets about investigating the area. He spends the next day making up his camp. Among his supplies, a 30-30 rifle, some canned and dry goods, a knife, and various other supplies one would need for nearly a month in the woods. Oh, and some snuff. For personal enjoyment. Over the course of the next week or so, he pushes further into the wild, up and down canyons and ravines, until eventually, miles away from his original camp, he comes across a place with two large cypress trees that looks like a promising campsite. So he settles in, tired and exhausted from a long day of hiking. He makes his fire, prepares his bed, and goes to sleep. When he wakes up in the morning, Albert discovers his camp has been disrupted. Nothing has been taken, but Osman thinks a porcupine has visited camp in the night, and since they like leather, he decides to sleep with his boots in the bottom of his bag and his rifle nearby from then on. The next night, it happens again. But this time, his backpack, which he had hung up off the ground, has been turned upside down, emptied out, and some of his supplies taken. He can't find any tracks to indicate who his nocturnal visitor might be, but he rules out both porcupines and bears. He decides he'll move camp the next day, but for now, he remains fully dressed at night with his boots and now his rifle inside the sleeping bag with him. He intends to stay awake all night, if need be, to catch whatever is messing up his camp and stealing from him. Instead, he drifts off to sleep. He's jolted awake by something grabbing hold of him and slinging he and his sleeping bag along with his pack over its shoulder. Whatever it is takes Albert and his pack full of gear and food and starts walking through the wilderness. All he can tell is that whatever is carrying him is huge and is doing it with ease. For three hours, Ostman is transported uphill and down, cramped up in the bottom of his bag, until finally he and his pack are set down. He can hear four individuals chattering to each other around him, but he understands nothing, and it finally dawns on him that he has been captured by what his native guide had called Sasquatch. Eventually, when dawn comes and he can see his captors, he can make out two adults and two smaller individuals all covered in hair. The big eight-foot-tall male he refers to as the old man 
The two smaller ones he takes as children, a boy and a girl, and the large female he assumes to be their mother. He finds himself stuck in a small valley or canyon, surrounded on all sides by steep mountains with a solitary entrance about eight feet wide, which the old man guards. Over the course of the next five days, Ostman attempts to assess his prospects for escape while making whatever overtures he can to the family of Sasquatch. He shares some of his food and equipment with a young male and appears to be winning him over. And he begins by making small gifts to the boy, including some snuff, which the creature then shares with his father. Albert doesn't consider shooting them to be a way out, first doubting that the 30-30 would be able to stop the 8-foot-tall, 600-plus-pound male, and then not wanting to be responsible for the murder of an intelligent animal. And they are intelligent, because it is their curiosity that proves their undoing and the key to Albert's freedom. On the morning of the sixth day, Ostman is preparing his coffee and making a big production out of how good it is. The old man and the boy are sitting nearby and observing. He stops to take a dip of snuff when the old man reaches out, snatches the nearly full box from Albert's hands, and pours the whole thing into his mouth, swallowing it all. And of course, he becomes very ill almost immediately. In an effort to alleviate his distress, the old man grabs the half-full coffee pot and downs all of that, including the grounds, in one go, which does not help at all. He's clearly in trouble. Ostman seizes the opportunity, grabs up his nearest supplies, and runs for the valley opening pursued by the old lady. Firing a shot into the rock scares her back inside the enclosure, and Albert makes good his escape, heading overland as near as he can judge for the coast, eventually to turn south and return to civilization. To date, Ostman is the only person to have ever claimed such direct and immediate interaction with Sasquatch, a name we are not convinced he would have known at the time, or that his native guide would have used only four years after its introduction. But then, if that's all that bothers you about the story, check out the rest of it, which is readily available online. It's quite the tale. But really, the much more common name for the creature Ostman and others claim to have seen over the years is Bigfoot. However, that didn't come along until the 50s and a man named Jerry Crew. Jerry was a road builder working around Bluff Creek in northwest California. One day, in late August of 1958, he drives out to the work site where a new logging road is being put in and gets ready to start his workday. He happens to look down around his tractor and notices a series of human-looking footprints in the freshly churned-up mud. At first, he thinks they're just a prank being played on him by his fellow workers. After all, who has 60-inch-long footprints? Curiosity peaked, though, he follows the footprints back to their origin point and discovers whoever made them had somehow traversed a near 75-degree embankment simply by walking up it, rather than the sort of scramble-up crew himself has to do to follow them. Tracking them back the other way, he finds them doing the same thing down the other side of the road embankment. Still thinking it's some sort of weird prank, he goes about the rest of his day. The only other puzzling point is the almost 50-inch stride, nearly twice that of Crew's own. Jerry makes some inquiries among the crew, and, while being mostly laughed at, he does find a few others who had seen or experienced something similar. No one admits to having perpetrated a hoax, but a month later, it all happens again. 
This time, though, it happens on two successive nights. More footprints in the mud, up and down steep embankments, impossible stride lengths, impossible sizes. But by the third night, Jerry Crew is prepared and brings Plaster of Paris to work the next morning, with which he makes a cast of one of the footprints. This he brings into town, and eventually shows to a reporter for the Humboldt Times of Eureka, who takes pictures of the enormous cast and runs a front-page article on the whole thing, using the nickname the road crew has given to whatever it was that makes the tracks, Big Foot, which stuck and caught the public imagination. So incredible was the story, and so amazing were the casts of the footprints, that the story was soon picked up by all the wires, services, and relayed first around the country and then around the world. And pretty much from then on, it has been the other name for the creatures. And making casts of the footprints is the thing to do if you are attempting to prove they exist. But one final story. There is a place in Washington State called Ape Canyon. It's a gorge located very near to Mount St. Helens' southeast side. In 1924, the same year as Albert Ostman's adventure, a group of four miners went into the gorge to see about extracting some gold. When they came out again, they had a terrible story to report, which ran in the Oregonian newspaper in July of that year and was retold by the Oregonian in May of 2019. Fred Beck, Gabe Lefevre, John Peterson, Marion Smith, and Smith's son, Roy, described coming upon gorilla men near where they had built a small cabin for their gold hunting forays. They claimed they were eight miles from Spirit Lake when they encountered four of the giant animals moving through the forest with erect human-like strides. They are covered with long black hair, the Oregonian reported, relating the descriptions offered by the men. Their ears are about four inches long and stick straight up. They have four toes, short and stubby. The witnesses estimated each animal weighed about 400 pounds. Taken aback at the sight of the huge beasts, Fred Beck fired his rifle at one of the creatures and, struck three times, the wounded animal toppled off a cliff. Beck reportedly claimed years later that another member of the party fired the shots. But the violence proved a mistake. That night, the men said, they were awakened when huge stones began clomping against the outside of their cabin. Then they heard and felt giant bodies slamming against the walls and door. The ape men were seeking revenge. The beasts eventually tore a hole in the roof, allowing them to target Beck. Many of the rocks fell through a hole in the roof, and two of the rocks struck Beck, one of them rendering him unconscious for nearly two hours, the Oregonian reported. Finally, the prospector said the sun began to come up, which prompted the animals to break off their attack and slip away. The men poked their heads out the door, and when they decided the coast was clear, ran out of the woods. Tales of giant ape men weren't exactly new to the area. Hunters, lumberjacks, and prospectors had seen massive footprints now and again over the years, and Native Americans in the area had spoken of mountain devils, but few people seriously worried about the possibility of huge, unknown creatures being out there in the forest. That changed when the gold hunters returned to civilization that summer day in 1924. The dramatic story of their battle with huge, human-like beasts was irresistible, and thus hard for people to dismiss. Which, we suppose, is true of us. It's hard to dismiss an exciting, entertaining story even when it is presented in the most fantastical terms, which clearly, obviously, can't possibly be true at all. 
Who could possibly believe in such creatures roaming around loose in the wilds and forests of the Pacific Northwest? And who would be gullible enough to fall for a bunch of clearly faked plaster casts? No one really. But some folks really like to believe in the possibility, if not the actual creature itself. Which is what makes it sort of fun for us. Probable? No. Possible? Maybe. After all, there's nothing terribly wrong with enjoying the warm fuzzies. Thanks for listening to another episode of GM Word of the Week. Unless this is your first time listening, in which case, welcome. Stick around and check out some of the other episodes on offer. It's really quite the selection. As ever, we invite you to subscribe to get future episodes as they come out. We had a little hiccup last week with the Spotify feed, but everything should be fine now. So if you missed the last episode, it's ready for you. Otherwise, the feed changes we talked about last time seem to have gone smoothly, so you shouldn't have any further problems. October is always a bit weird around here, and this year is no exception. Still, we hope you enjoy what we have planned for the month. It's safe to say it's not going to be anything like you expect or like anything we've done before. Something to look forward to, we hope. If you enjoyed this episode and the show, please consider supporting us by visiting our website at gmwordoftheweek.com and clicking the yellow banner at the top of every page. You'll be taken to our support page where you'll be offered a variety of choices, any of which are perfectly acceptable and very much appreciated. They help keep the ad monster away so you don't have to hear about how amazing the latest box of What's It Snacks is, even though you've never heard of any of it before. No nasty tricks or treats. This episode was researched, written, produced by Brian, a bit hairy but not that bad, Casey. Music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions, home to more than a few vaguely disquieting tunes. The inclination to believe in the fantastic may strike some as failure in logic or gullibility, but it's really a gift. A world that might have Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster is clearly superior to one that definitely does not. <laughs>